Hello there. Welcome to the Heavy Hole. My name is Tom. Oh boy, it's me, Big Will, a.k.a. Uncle Buck again. God, we're just exhausted of doing all this heavy lifting without Justin. We built this tricycle, and we're riding a bicycle. Is it, does that make sense? Wait, are you, are you a rapper now? Um, look at where we're at. We're at without, without Justin. I'm just too tired to move. You're like a, a SoundCloud rapper. I, I'm an insane person. Yeah, I noticed you have uh, what are the? Well, you have an NFT tattooed on your face. I now. do. Yeah, I have the stupid cat with the f- fucking yeah. uh, rainbow coming out. Yeah, I have to peel your skin. I have to do like a dead skin mask type of situation just to get your NFT now. I'm basically just rapping about the South Shore all the time. That pre- actually pretending because they talk about hacking. You know, Bitcoin yeah. and all this type of oh, yeah. you know stuff and, and NFTs. Is a, could that possibly be the future with NFTs now? Is you have to get a tattoo on your skin, and that prevents people from stealing your your you know currency. If anything, it would make it easier. How? how? I don't because it's an access point. So, like you, the less traces of whatever public wallet you have, the better. Well, no, no, what I'm saying is you have to cut off a section of your skin. Oh, I see what you mean. trade it in just oh. to cash in on that shit. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. So yeah, that, also that would it's be like very a, safe. It's an excellent incentive to save your money. Yeah, it sure is, because who's yeah. going to fucking sell? Not a big... I'm not... Look, I'm I'm not like, you know, uh, last house on the left over here. I'm not saying you got to cut, cut off a whole arm. Like, maybe you just have a little section of your... Of one finger, and there's like a little, like a... Like a you know, a square millimeter of, of of skin, and a guy with a laser does it in a surgical office. I'm like, I'm not crazy here. I'm not dystopian. You're not. You're not that far off. Okay, thank you. Look, Bill Gates. You know, Steve Jobs. Holler at me. I got ideas too. I listen to a lot of death metal and read a lot of death metal lyrics. I feel like you're, I can help in this dystopian nightmare. That you kind of specify, watching. like you do a lot of sci-fi writing. Yeah, well, so. I, I used to. We're right. not going to go there, okay? Oh. I'm talking about Afterbirth. Come on. I'm talking about I, I, I jest, sir. Yes, thank you. Um, uh, But wait, speaking of Afterbirth, I like the way you warmed up the segue there, man. It gets cold yeah. nowadays in November. I'm not even trying. Thanksgiving approaching. Um... Uh, you got it nice and toasty for me on the Segway because this past weekend I saw you, Tom. Yeah, I saw you too, man. But not just at the studio. It was the first time I saw you at a death metal show in public at a venue in a very long time, if I'm not mistaken. It was uh, felt different. Yeah. It, it, honestly, I had this thought. It was kind of like um, it, it's like a strange relationship. Huh. Like where you broke up with a girl and then you get back together with her and it's not the same, you know, like high school relationships and shit like that. Like I mean, that's you're, what you're, COVID did. It was like a weird breakup. You're talking about like being at a show. You're not talking about you and me specifically ta- as two men who I, know each other. Yes, I'm not. Yeah, I'm okay. talking about being at a okay. show. Okay, just not for the frolicking. Yeah, yeah, I was getting just for the listeners. Yeah. I was gonna specify that. Okay, uh, but got weird. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> back on track. Yeah, uh, that's your relationship with metal at, at a show. Oh, that's why I felt for uh, the first 10 minutes of being at the show. And yeah. then it settles in. It's just like, oh, yeah, this is actually uh, pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, it was crowded. It was. It was It was, uh, it was, it was. was very crowded. We'll leave it at that. It was yeah. very crowded. Mm-hmm. Big packed out, sold out, suffocation, uh, internal bleeding, um, afterbirth. I was very honored just to, just, just to be there. In the words of uh, rapper AZ, I just want to be there. Uh, monochromatic Black. Um, uh, shout out to John Gribben. I went to Wilson Tech. 
uh, um, for high school, uh, I, I, where I intermixed with other um, alleged delinquents. Who, who was he? The uh, guitar player in that band? Or? Yeah, he was. He was the um, the the Irishman with the crew cut. Okay, playing yeah, a mean yeah. playing a mean stringed instrument there. Many strings. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, for monochromatic black. Yeah, I got when I went to, when I was in high school. Uh, they they said they sent. Um, uh, they said the the alleged delinquents to uh, Wilson Technical School, man. I got to meet a lot of kids from the other towns who were into hardcore and metal and things like that there. Right. Man. Interestingly enough. So, so I, I, yeah, it was really great to be like 25 years later. Yeah, about 20, eh, t- between 20 and 20, 25 years later. I can't do the math. I was in high school a long time ago. We didn't have the internet like we do now. Um, uh, and to be back with John Gribben uh, playing a show uh, with both of our bands in the local metal scene, man, that was fun. And Stabbed, of course. Yeah, they were awesome. Yeah, nice young guys. Yeah. Good guys. Like those guys. Um, of course, being up front, I'm in a band with the members of Stabbed, Exsanguinated. People can peep on Bandcamp right now. Exsanguinated 666 on Bandcamp. Um, but yeah, I, th- I thought it was a great experience just to have a nice, brutal, sold-out show. Big shout to Pyrexia also. Big night for long. Big night for New York metal, New York death metal in, in general. Because Pyrexia was back in full force in Brooklyn the Friday night before that. I couldn't go because we had a little afterbirth rehearsal Friday night. I'm still not 100 percent from my surgery that I had. I haven't really been talking about that, man. I had a little pain in the leg. Doctors hacked me up for barbecue. Now I'm better. That's it. But well, um, I didn't truck out to Brooklyn for the Pyrexia show Friday night. But big shout to Pyrexia. Uh, they talked it up. And on Staten Island, uh, Gray Sky's Fallen and Evoken holding it down on Friday night also. It was a big weekend for New York Extreme Metal. Fantastic. Yeah, so shout to them. Um, I wish I was 100% from my surgery, and I, I didn't uh, have my uh, rehearsal with Afterbirth Friday, uh, so I could have maybe trucked out and done some sort of crazy Staten Island Brooklyn Marathon night and caught those shows. But shout to those guys and shout out to everybody who was there. I'm sure it was a beautiful um, event. Yeah, uh, so Long Island that show was. Yeah, the, uh, suffocation show. I mean, the uh, the gymnastics kids were in full force Ooh. during internal bleeding. Yeah, wow. They were gone. There was a fight in there, which you gotta have at least one fight. It happens at internal bleeding shows on Long Island, allegedly. Yeah, historically. Overall, the energy was very good, though. Yeah, the, the yeah. crowd was uh, fantastic. A little tight, as you mentioned. Yeah, all the bands they they sounded good. Sound yeah. guy was on his game man yeah. everyone sounded real the good sound what dude i gotta say historically at amityville musical all i'm gonna say about it that sound guy who was there saturday night really good job yeah they're they're doing great they're better than ever I, yeah. i'd say so yeah, yeah crushed to that man um a lot of people that came out a lot of, a lot of old and new faces john osgood former guest of the show was there yeah um and we're gonna tell you a little bit about him uh and his pursuit of christian extreme metal uh, throughout his life. Yes, it's a part of the scene. One that we do respect uh, and accommodate on this show from time to time. I'm going to talk about it a little bit after our interview, but Tom, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about Wilson Technical School, the delinquent kids, the misfits. You know what I mean? Yep. We talked about Long Island. Things are very Long Island around here. So sometimes. Long Island. They just so happen to be. It gets crazy Long Island sometimes, man. But it's going to get a little bit more Long Island tonight. And we're going to talk and we're going to give a fair shot to the alleged delinquents of the world and the troubled youth. Because tonight's guest is none other than esteemed author of the books Teenage Wasteland, Suburbia's Dead End Kids, A Misfits Manifesto, The Spiritual Journey of a Rock and Roll Heart, and Why the Ramones Matter. Uh, Also, 
uh, taught at Bernard College of Columbia University, a New York State certified social worker, has written for The Village Voice, Rolling Stone, Spin, Maximum Rock and Roll, was recently cited in the September 2021 volume of Metal Music Studies by UK scholars John Peter Hurst and Carl Spracklenass as a uh, foundational researcher in international studies of metal as a genre and culture. Listen, guy, I'm going to slow down right now and tell you it's Dr. Donna Gaines. to list all of your credentials, Doctor, but thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, and and um, I did, yeah, I did uh, uh, slip up a little bit at the beginning because, like I said, there's a lot to get into here. Um, and for listeners of the show, I just listed listed your book, A Misfits Manifesto. Your uh, your memoir really gets to um, a lot of your your growing up and get, getting into the early roots of punk rock music as it was happening in New York City and Long Island and that sort of thing. And I have a lot of questions about that. In your book, you talk a little bit, once you talk about coming of age and growing up, you talk about your relationship uh, with the lead singer of the Slugs, I guess you could call us kind of a seminal New York City punk band, Long Island and New York City punk band, right? Yes, yeah, they were the Slugs, and then at a certain point they morphed into the Corpse Grinders, um, but they played, uh, they booked differently depending on uh, who was in the band, um, the uh, the slugs were guys from uh, Queens and uh, Nassau County. The lead singer is my life partner. He's <laughs> 43 years and still standing. Um, and he um, he had his band. And then uh, there was a party in Seacliff, uh, New York. And he um, I ran into I made friends with these young ladies who um, were married to uh, some of the guys in the Corpse Grinders, and one of them was uh, Rick Rivets, who was one of the founding members of the New York Dolls. When the Dolls broke up, uh, Killer Kane started the Corpse Grinders. Uh, they had been friends, I think, since at least high school or community college, uh, just regular guys from Queens. So that was that was those were the two bands, and that was really my whole life uh, from 1978 till you know. I mean, I kind of still listen to the music. <laughs> well, also the the music, some of it is actually available. You have your YouTube channel, Doctor Donna Gaines, um, and for people who are interested, actually, in um, uh, the Why the Ramones Matter book. Uh, there's some clips promoting that, but you also do have some some uh, clips from the Slugs, um, and I guess other music that's relevant to that time. Yeah, um, the the real fun for people who look who are interested in that historical moment is I have on my website. It's Doctor Donnick. No, wait, let me if you remember www.donnickgames.com. And I have, my whole life is up there because I never had like a normal job. So I had like everything that I've ever done is up there. So there's one section with um, like uh, a shrine where I have uh, 
I wrote some obituaries for some of our great, great loves, uh, you know, for Joey and Dee Dee and, uh, and Johnny and also Johnny Cash and uh, there's just um, Johnny Thunders. And then there's, there's a gallery of photos that says Ramon's World. And so there's a lot of old vintage photos. I'd love everybody that's interested to check that out. And then, um, you know, there's just a lot of stuff out there. I've been doing it for so long. Uh, it piles up. You, you absolutely have. And that's, that's why, you know, to be perfectly upfront with you and the listeners, I'm a little... Uh, flustered with the intro here because there is so much ground I want to cover and I, I, I might have neglected to mention you are originally from Rockaway Queens which was made famous by the Ramones Rockaway Beach yes yes uh, yeah the, it's a um, a surf town uh, South Shore uh, it's just over the bridge from Long Beach uh, it's a surf capital um, I think Duke Kahanamoku surfed there in uh, maybe 19... 19- 12 um, and uh, that's the land of my birth and it's a place that uh, Dee Dee used to hitchhike to to hang out um, to probably pick up uh, young ladies uh, when they were Forest Hills teenagers so I'm the same age as Joey and they're as close to me in, uh, in experience and background as you can get you know just everything and it it's I take it that you didn't get to know them personally until later in life, more of a, like in a journalistic capacity at first. Well, you know, I knew them in two capacities. I knew them from the clubs, like hanging around the jukebox and the bar. How are you? But um, it was 1996. They were breaking up, and by then I was writing for The Voice, uh, and the music editor asked me if I wanted to interview them, and I said, yeah, and so I had to interview all of them, uh, and some were easier than others because of just geography, but um, I became really good friends with them after that because that's just how they are. Like, once you get involved with them, you really don't ever get out of it. You know, it's, that's how bands are. Uh, but the Ramones are especially about outreach to uh, to the marginalized, uh, you know, youth, which, of course, uh, you know, I will be well into my geriatric years. Um, so that's how I got to know them. And then after that, you know, I've been involved with them. Whatever they're doing, I try to support because we love our bands. And and you know you, you talk uh, in the um, some of the clips I saw the why the Ramones matter uh, book you you bring it to more of a philosophical level and some uh, um, social so social commentary level I guess I should say maybe on uh, DIY and what DIY means to the music scene and I, I think that's something that maybe me for I'm not going to speak for my whole generation but maybe uh, myself as a younger listener we take uh, it for granted I'm. Th- I'm going to be 40 next year, so I came of age more with grunge and, and new metal, and then we got into death metal and hardcore kind of after that, and DIY was always accepted. It was always accepted that there was this undercurrent of punk rock and indie rock and DIY that was there for you to get into. Could could you maybe speak to a little bit about why the Ramones are important in that regard? Um, well, I think that they were just, you know, like we talk about these bands that we that we were part of, you know, me being like, you know... A girlfriend, or with the, with Pyrexia, a you know support, big supporter, or um, 
And the, and the Ramones were really local guys from Forest Hills that hung out on the street corners like some of us did uh, over the generations. Because, of course, you know, my, the Ramones and myself are, are um, baby boomers. I think, you know, Pyrexia, those guys are probably Gen X. You, it sounds like a millennial. But it's these, some stuff is really the same. And, and these bands have aren't rich, uh, aren't particularly uh, model material uh, for like, uh, you know, um, to have like huge wads of capital to produce them. So what they do is they borrowed from the available resources of their landscape. So they bought guitars with green stamps. They um, carried them in paper bags on the subway station. They did recordings in their living rooms. They put their clothes together from what they wore. Um, it, it got a little more formalized because Tommy was such a visionary. But, you know, I would say that, you know, their childhood, their background, their youth, their relationship to their families, their high schools, that was just, you know, like when you look back and say, oh, the metalheads of high school or the punks of high school or the goths of high school. So, you know, we all came of age when it was still, I guess, like 68, 69 would have been when we got out of high school. So DIY was because there was, you know, there was no, um, the, we didn't have the money or even any place to go to buy what we envisioned creatively. And uh, the same thing was going on, you know, I think DIY can be traced back. It's a very American thing. It's a very working class thing. People just using their wits to produce and create uh, artifacts of culture and forms of culture that, um, that you just can't buy. Um, and that includes music, clothes, language. I think hip-hop followed that. Uh, it's just when we talk about music coming up from the street, like, you know, what the girl groups uh, and doo-wop came out of uh, guys hanging out in, uh, and girls later hanging out in, uh, like, um, uh, storefronts, alcoves to get a good echo sound. Uh, surfers put together surfboards out of ironing boards, skateboards out of um, roller skate wheels and so DIY is just American it's I'm sure it's going on all over the world too but I didn't, didn't write about that I wrote about a very American band with a global and in, and cross generational appeal okay yeah, exactly and there's a, there's a lot there something that you touch on a lot you, you say the working class you mentioned the teenagers in front of the storefronts there's a parallel I feel there to something that struck a chord with me in the book Teenage Wasteland you wrote of um, uh, BOCES which for those who the listeners who may not realize B-O-C-E-S the BOCES program um, it's 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 funny but it's also said when I was growing up in school it was used as uh, something to mock you're a BOCES you know, something of that nature, you know, something to mock other, you're going to go to BOCES, you know, something like that. Um, and it, and it, I ended up in the Wilson Tech vocational program, which is something very similar out here in Suffolk County. Um, but what it speaks to is, is kids that don't fit in in the normal current of uh, the normal mainstream of uh, education and, and, and that system during that time who were 
um, in some instances put into like a technical school program. And that's touched on a lot. Is and it almost seems like could I infer maybe that 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 can be a funnel into the the music and the subculture scene? Well, that's exactly the argument I made in Teenage Wasteland. It's like when you know that for, for listeners who might not have uh, be familiar with the book, um, there was a um, during the eighties there were like clusters of teenage suicides, and there was one particularly like. Uh, tragic one in North Jersey in the town of Bergenfield. It was very similar to the town I lived in at the time, which is Mineola Carl Place, Long Island, Turnpike Town. Um, four kids uh, committed suicide, and the way that the adults responded to it was to blame Ozzy and to blame the music and the subculture. The kids were um, openly and regularly um, insulted uh, as uh, dirtbags and burnouts and um, they just um, I you know I, I just was astonished because um, I just remembered growing up and having my friends labeled and I was a labeled kid that hung out on the corner we called them the candy store back then um, and I went there to just to find out who they were, who, who are these kids, and who are their enemies, and who are their allies, and who are their supporters, because in my heart of hearts, I, I, I was a social worker for, for a long time before I, you know, when ended up with more theoretical sociology. So I was a social worker. I worked with kids on the streets in Levittown and, uh, you know, Hempstead with young families in uh, Long Island. And... Um, I just, I was just like really pissed off. I'm like, you're not getting away with this shit again, you know? And so I went out there and I, I met the kids on the street and, and lo and behold, I noticed a couple of things, like just right off the bat that they were extremely creative. They were uh, really um, marginalized by the high school and by the power structure of the town. I didn't think their parents could even begin what was to understand what was going on uh, because of the way the school made parents intimidated. Uh, so a lot of the kids were labeled. They were dumped into um, special education simply for being more energetic, which to me says the kid's bored. A lot of the kids might have just done better in a different kind of school or cultural environment. And here they are, they're carrying this label, and that made me really nuts. Um, and I just found, you know, so much creativity in how much the kids were um, saved by the music that they loved and how much more supportive Ozzy Osbourne was uh, in the concerts and um, how much their bands understood them because a lot of the bands came from these backgrounds too. And so did the Ramones, and I did too, more or less my friends uh, hanging out on the street corners in the Rockaways uh, going back into the 50s. So it was just time for me to pull the plug on their... Can I curse on the podcast? Feel free. <laughs> All right, yeah, it was time for, you know, I felt it was time to pull the plug on their bullshit. And so I just spent, a, you know, a couple of months there. But then I also, and this is interesting because we mentioned, you know, 
that Pyrexia are the band that we have in common uh, that led you guys to me. And Pyrexia, they, you know, Daryl, uh, the singer Daryl Wagner uh, and Guy Marche, <clears throat> excuse me, were Mineola guys at the time. And they were, I guess they were in their late teens and early 20s. Um, and Daryl was working at Metal 24. I called it Metal 24. It was this um, um, convenience store. And uh, after, like, long nights out in New Jersey, I'd drive home and I would need some junk food. So I would go in there and, and I would hear them playing music. And that's how we became friends. That's how today is possible. It came out of that. <laughs> they, wanted some, they wanted some band shots. Um, and I think the sh- even that or I needed a cover for my book. I don't remember which came first, but that's how that cover came of a- came to be. And when I published it, and I think it, it came out in hardcover in early 90s, and the version, it later came out in paperbacks a little later. And then just they were still young, and I, you know, one of the things that we do is we never really uh, blow anybody's... Uh, confidentiality uh, if you're you know so i i think um but they were a band so that was different um the, the um and then i went I, I i think through the whole 90s i wrote all these articles for the village voice and newsday and spin about metal but mostly death metal and and uh the darker stuff that we like um, but I kind of like it all now. But that, um, you know, I, I just—that's where I got uh, more intensively involved with that scene was through them. So here we are, right? Yeah. Wow. That's it's it's funny how things can happen like that. Um, and you know, speaking of of the voice, one question. Uh, I'm glad we're at Pyrexia now. But something that I found very interesting was that you actually were hired as a consultant to the Village Voice which for our listeners not from the New York area is a, um, uh, was or I, it, I don't believe it, it's around anymore in print form, right? No, I think they got a new owner and it is, has resurrected itself. I'm not sure as okay. what, but some of the original people are writing for them again. Um, it's, um, yeah, I think it did come back to life. It's, it's just refuses to die, you know. <laughs> okay, I, I'm, I'm, I'm mistaken on that, but, um, but regardless, that's kind of like a, uh, a kind of a trade publication for arts and culture and, and a lot of different things and that's uh, very widely known in New York City. And you at one point were a consultant for them, and you're in a way responsible for the study that led them to begin the Long Island Voice, the Long Island offshoot of the Village Voice, right? Exactly, yeah. Thank you for mentioning that because that really was a great paper. I had a reign of a couple of years Um these regional papers don't always, you know, they, they, they pop up and they, they die out. But there was some really, it was, my motivation was I, that there were so many great writers out here and so many great musicians. And I have a big mouth huh. and the credentials, so I could, I could get this stuff into the city version of The Voice. But, you know, I, there were other people, um, and some of the people that they covered and who wrote for them, uh, Arthur Stevenson, who's the singer of the Immortal Sea Monster, yes. which I can't even begin to describe what they are. They're just brilliant. Uh, Tanya Indiana, she's passed away. Uh, and 
And there were just some great people writing for it. And I think I put in a cover story for it. Um, and it was just, I was very proud of it because I just love, I don't know, I've never left Long Island. I came out here, uh, I got a scholarship to go to school, fell in love with the lead singer in the band, and I never left, you know, I just never, never left. So it's a little, little while I was in, living in the city, but that's a whole other story. And, um, and yeah, I was very proud of that, that. And then it folded. I just, it, you know, it just wasn't enough of a base for it. But there should have been. Like, you're in Huntington, so you know that fantastic movie place. The, the, the cinema, cinema Arts Center. I, I actually worked there in high school into my early 20s as an usher. Yeah. Ah! Yeah. Ah! Yeah, with great, well, still, you, still around, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, wherever you are, there's, there's creativity. And, like, I'm... I guess I'm diehard localist. You know, I'm like, I'm trained to be universalist. I'm trained to be cosmopolitan. But my heart is always, I never really got out of Rockaway. You could tell that by my accent. Well, that, that's Deep Queen. You're on the right podcast right now for everything you just said because we we've interviewed <laughs> I, we've interviewed people from as far away as um, Botswana, Africa, all over Europe, and I mean all over. We're trying to get people from every continent now, um, but you know it's we also have uh, a, we specialize in Long Island and kind of deep cuts like this, um, and and that's you know you, you talked about Metal Twenty Four. You talked a little bit about being introduced to the the original lineup of Pyrexia, and you know you said in that book like you you do keep confidentiality because the nature of the book people should realize is it's a study on troubled youth, um, and you were able to get uh, uh, a lot of these kids to confide in you to to tell a real story and do real research, um, but there are there are parts in the book where you can kind of infer that at least it, it it's part of Long Island metal culture at that time, and when. Um, I was reading the Misfits, uh, a Misfits Manifesto, your other book. There's actually a, a, a page. I was actually taken aback. You kind of almost write a love letter to death metal, which I felt <laughs> are, are. Yeah, I, 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 I think I need a pause for, for our listeners to hear this, and then I'll ask you my question about Pyrexia. But there's one passage here um, where industrial music spoke to a process of decline. Death was terminal and fixed. This world looks like an autopsy film, not a horror movie. Flesh and carnage are explicit, pornographic, detached from human pain and suffering, stripped of emotion and sensation. Death metal offers clinically precise, grim exploration of the body, the soul, and the world. And it goes on from there, but I'll let people explore the book if they'd want. Just just to give you credibility to our death metal listeners if they doubted the interview thus far. But the the question I'm getting at is... Um, uh, with, with this original, you know, you say something here, nobody in Pyrexia actually worshipped Satan, um, but you do mention that these guys were serious on some level in terms of philosophy and metaphysics studies and things like that, and that's something that I always inferred from reading Daryl Wagner's lyrics. Could you tell us just, like, getting to know these guys, like, how did that, how does that come up, the occult all that sort of thing, because I think that that maybe is a, maybe was that at that point a new level to this youth culture that you hadn't experienced in the punk scene. No, well, you know, I mean, my my <laughs> my beloved uh, life partner was what you would call a Satan teen. You know, he had the jacket with Manson painted on the back of it. Um, I was um, I put spells on people when I was a teenager. I think it goes back to to like. Um, 
probably earlier than this, but like Anita Pallenberg and the Rolling Stones with like the darkness. And then, of course, Sabbath was playing with that. And um, and then even in even in Led Zeppelin with their, you know, Druid fixation, they had these. So but uh, just Pyrexia were one of the most brilliant groups of people that I've met. They were the most dedicated, disciplined um, tech, you know, just, they were just impeccable. Uh, and I admire that about them. I don't think I ever saw drugs or alcohol, and um, which would always have been a feature in any studio. Um, I don't think, I mean, I don't, I don't know what they were into, but I never saw it, and practice was, they were just so diligent, and just watching, um, Daryl come up with these songs. Um, they had a friend Wallace who I still have that jacket. Um, <laughs> I don't know where they found it, but it, it was given to me. And uh, it, it, he painted all these skulls on the back. And um, it's what in social science we would call a critique. Um, but, it, you know, watching Rob Shamansky play guitar was like. I mean, this was like watching any any kind of guitar hero that we would you know that we would admire, and of course, all these guys got great careers in tech, and uh, they're family men, and um, I think Rob is a, is a former Marine uh, who uh, you know I'm still in touch with, um, and Guy continued to play, but they were brilliant. I don't think they believed in religion at all. Um, they might now, but I know that I don't think that they did then. I think that they, there was somebody who said, I think it was Tommy Christ, religion's pretty stupid, which is one of the great, great old quotes. And um, I think, you know, that they were on to some kind of spirituality of death. I, that was the title of one of the articles I wrote, because I found some real existential truth in it. And I think that they were brilliant, and I think they were they were just, uh, I was in awe of what they produced uh, musically, uh, just in awe of it, I, and, and then they were just the nicest people, too, to hang out with, uh, and I just loved it, and at one point I had a cover story that was <laughs> for the Village Voice, well, let me see what it was, it might have been Newsday, and it was, the title of it was Suicide Satan and Heavy Metal, because, you know, they want to, oh, here it is, it was Newsday, part two, I guess they did a profile of uh, Teenage Wasteland, uh, so this was going back to 1991 or something, and I'm hanging out, and, uh, you know, on the corner somewhere, was, you know, they, they got to sell the papers, and, um, but they loved that. They went nuts when they saw that they put a copy of it up in the studio and they asked me to be their manager, which is kind of a joke because I don't think I ever did anything managerial um, for them. But I did try whenever possible to get them publicity. So, you know, I'd write about them. I would put them in stories and in books and on the cover of books. I just really believed in them. And there's nothing like a psychotic fan. <laughs> you know, I mean... That was my relationship with, you know, I mean, my mother was a musician, so I'm trained for that. Um, and then, the, you know, the slugs and corpse grinders, uh, and then Pyrexia and the Ramones and, you know, all the bands that I've really uh, followed. And um, 
And I end up now, you know, being a professor teaching about music, and um, because that's what I knew, that was my life. But it it just started as a as a real uh, act, like serendipity, you know, just following stuff you love. And I'm sure that's why you're here today. You followed something you loved. Yeah. Well. And now, yeah, now you're a broadcaster. So <laughs> it's it's funny. Well, it's funny to think of it that way, but it's uh, it's true. Um, and. To, just to go back for a minute, you mentioned, and this was something I wanted to ask because you, you speak of him in your book, um, uh, A Misfits Manifesto. Wallace, am I? Am, I'm inferring that this is Wallace Milton, who was the original singer of Internal Bleeding. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. Kind of, kind of a, um, a, a, a mysterious figure, respectfully, in like cult death metal circles, because he record. I believe he recorded that first. Uh, demo with internal bleeding and did a lot of artwork for local bands and then kind of disappeared from the scene and di- you know did his own thing um but but people always kind of you know the old school people that go back always remember that yeah he was a real force of uh a creative force it just exploded out of these guys um like if you would meet one one of them randomly on the street you know the conversation would just pulsate with ideas and 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 um yeah that that uh, that jacket, I, I think I might start wearing it again in honor of uh, Heavy Hole today. <laughs> wow! My, when, when I go food shopping, it might be on my back today, just just to celebrate this. But um, yeah, talented, talented people. Uh, and talent isn't really, you know, talent is half of it, but the discipline and the drive, and then making the effort to make the right uh, connections with people, like. To you know, follow other bands and support other bands, and I remember going to their shows, and I was—I had to be fifteen, twenty years older than them. I, my math is not that good, but um, they were—you uh, know—they just always supported other bands. Other bands supported them, and that's how it happens. That's how it works. That's how CBGBs was born. Just people supporting people. It's yeah. no different, and I'm sure that it's the same for hip hop. You know, it starts out in the neighborhood. It starts out on the street with the kids, uh, young people. And by kids, it could be under 30. It's not even, not. it's just an attitude. Um, well, now, now, we're, now we're at the point where it's, I mean, I'm about to turn 40. And, um, you, know, there's, there, you know, there's really, age, age in metal isn't really a big thing anymore. I mean, you have a lot of bands, you know, death metal in particular is experiencing such a resurgence right now where you have a lot of old school bands coming back. Pyrexia. Perfect, perfect, um, you know, point. Over the years, Chris Basile is the original member still in the band now, and they they have a solid lineup for many years now. Um, guys, I, I I don't know that you would know, but um, you know, there's so many legacy bands that keep coming back with young blood and young talent in the band, and uh, it's it's you know it has no it has no no age limits to metal really. Well, metal is always there, and it's always it's good for like you know the sounds of brutality. That's the culture we're living in, and, and oh, it's been that way. Yeah, I mean, it was really bad when the Ramones were coming of age. It was really bad when I was writing Teenage Wasteland. And, you know, um, it really wasn't a book about the kids. It was really a book about the, the about how adult authority diminishes young people and the life chances that young people might have had if they had more supportive environments. I found nobody was supporting those kids except, ironically, the the military, the the recruiters, and you know were 
were looking out for them. Some of the cops, but the people that were really like sucking light out of those kids in Burgerfield in 1980s, I I understood it to be um, school counselors, uh, mental health people. They were just slapping these kids with labels so that they could dump them into special education and take away funds from kids who really needed that support, but they didn't want to deal with the discipline problems, and they would say they had emo- they were emotionally disturbed. So this is just going on and on. When the, I, I, So I'm a sociologist, so I wouldn't study the kids. I would study the social forces that, that pushed those kids, or any kid. And, it, you know, there was nothing unique about Bergenfield. It was very much like any other town in America at that time with a school. But um, Long Island was a little different. Um, I, I don't know. It might have just... I don't know why. I think it wasn't... It was a series of, of uh, just strokes of luck. And there were some pretty good bands that came out of that area, like, um, oh, um, Billy Milano's band... Um, oh, yeah, S- S- O D and M O D. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. M O. Yeah, yeah. S O D and M O D. I'm thinking of M M D C. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So that so there was definitely a lively creative. I just didn't live there, so I didn't know at all about the music. I was there to really just find out what the f happened with these kids, and um, yeah. So that was that, um, and. You know, it just—it's like uh, you know the same. You know the expression SSDD, same shit, different day. Yeah. And you know, so it doesn't surprise me that death metal would be um, would be uh, ascending again. Uh, and this is what happens, and that's good to know because these guys are great. What is suffocation still playing out? As a matter, it's funny you should ask. I I front a band uh, called Afterbirth, and we just had the oh. honor of opening up for Internal Bleeding and Suffocation on Saturday night. Um, oh this my past at, at the Amityville Music Hall. Oh. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Pyrexia played their first show back since the pandemic on Friday night in Brooklyn. So it's it's. Wow. I mean, I'm I've been following underground death metal for about 25 years, and it's at a height now that I've never seen it at. Um, and there's such a younger conti- the old school people have every reason to be excited about it now as ever and there's such a breakthrough of younger fans and younger artists and younger musicians from the hardcore scene from the, the new metal from wherever Just it's very death metal is hugely popular right now well yeah yeah I mean it's just like it's worldwide it's just the stuff you know um and it, and you know because of the all the crossovers that have happened, because um, back in the day, you know, we talk about the gang wars, <laughs> Huntington of the racist skins versus non-racist skins, um, but but in the eight, mid eighties, uh, punks and metalheads were not very friendly, and then hardcore kind of grew out of the punk stuff, um, but the punks and the metalheads, I remember. The night it happened for me was, um, and of course, you know, we, any boomer has roots in hard rock, like, you know, with a blue, in a blues field, maybe like Zep or uh, Sabbath and Purple, but 
um, new new wave of uh, British heavy metal was you know was was coming of age. But um, I remember in the mid '80s um, going to see Black Flag, and they were doing a tour with Saint Vitus, which is like the kings of doom metal from mm-hmm. L.A. That's, these were L.A.-based bands, and it was really ballsy for like Henry Rollins to book them as his opening act. But we really liked them. They were speeded out as shit. They were really, really good. And then, of course, the relationship between Lemmy and the Ramones was a great love fest that forced punks, you know, they, they, we, we started to go to see Motorhead. And uh, then there was Biker Metal came out of that. I think there was a band Circus of Power that came out of it, Biker Metal, they called it. So there was an explosion of stuff. So, you know, it used to be like the world religions your parents, you know, you're probably your great grandparents, but my parents, you know, they if you if you married out of your religion, you were you know excommunicated, and and now who cares? Nobody nobody cares. Yeah. So it was like that with the bands. People were just, you know, the the social and economic, even the drug base of any of these bands was. Uh, was very very uh, discordant. It was very incompatible. But these great crossovers introduced us to a new world. And then uh, then you had you know Metallica and you know thrashing. Thrash kind of helped punks, but ah, you know that that's always harder. You know I have friends who hate me because I love I love metal and probably metal friends who think I'm a traitor because I still like you know punk, but. Most people don't give a shit, right? <laughs> now, now, nowadays, there's really not a lot of genre lines unless people want them to be there. You can find crossovers of, of just about everything if you. I mean, the internet opened it opened it up wide. Um, but but there's a there's a lot that I wanted to ask you about. Um, and you you know you brought up uh, uh, the 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 way that you want to explore what was really going on with these kids, that it wasn't necessarily Ozzy Osbourne as much as it was maybe the school system, the parents, things like that. I have to shout out quickly for our listeners, um, former guests of our show, author uh, Jesse Pollock and uh, his producer um, Dan Jones for a documentary based on his book The Acid King, which is, of course, about Ricky Casso from Northport, New York, which I'm sure you're familiar. Oh, wow, familiar. yeah. And, well, the reason I got to bring this up is because I saw, um, as, uh, just as someone who had already read Teenage Wasteland, when I read The Acid King, I saw tremendous parallels there. Because he um, he did it later on, though. He did it uh, uh, by the time every all the teenagers from Northport who were around during that time, uh, the Ricky Casso murder uh, happened. He he went back into Northport while when they were all middle aged when all those people were grown and kind he actually gained the confidence and trust of all of these people and um, he he was able uh, to to really he wrote a book that for me as a lifelong Huntington resident who grew up into heavy metal obviously that's very close to home that story and I almost felt like he had solved the mystery for me that was in my head about it. you know what I mean it was like he wrote such a thorough breakdown of the events. And he provided yeah. a lot of proof. He was able to get, um, what is it, Freedom of Information Act um, uh, stuff from Suffolk County Police that people hadn't had access to in the past, I guess. And he really... Yeah, wow. And, and the, the saddest part about it is that, yeah, he does dispel all of the mystery of the occult and the Satanism because at the end of the day, you see some really alienated teenagers. Yeah, 
Well, that's the whole thing, you know. It's like, it's hard enough to come of age in a very complex society, but when all the institutions seem to be pitted against you, um, you know, and, and it's just something that, um, you know, the larger problem at that time and, um, it, you know, in, in the late 80s, was the beginning of disinvestment. So the factories were closing. And let's say your parents worked in a factory and that was going to be your job with good benefits and you could stay in the community. So those things started to go overseas and people lost jobs and people were all dressed up for life with no place to go. So my larger concern as a structural sociologist and a cultural sociologist was to look at these larger forces Forces. I wasn't writing about the. I was looking at who the kids were in the context of history and society. Like I wasn't, you know, like I gave them some names. Like um, I think one guy was Nikki, and you know that I made up these names for them. Um, it wasn't his life, you know, about him. It was about his moment in time. Uh, the way that I would have written about the Ramones, you know, like who were they in history as. Uh, sons of of veterans coming home from the most horrifying theater of battle with PTSD and untreated and maybe self-medicating with alcohol and growing up marginalized on the street because they hated high school and being creative and where are they going to find the outlet. So I think that that's universal. And that's, you know, the difference between like, like a sociologist's perspective over like a psychologist or, you know, somebody studying, um, you know, uh, a particular case to find out uh, what actually happened. Uh, but this book that you mentioned, The Acid King, that could go right on my bu- my course. Um, it's called Interventions with At-Risk Youth, and it looks exactly at all of these things. So uh, now I'm, I've got a new. I just wrote it down. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the Jesse Jesse Pollock, the yes, hi, I highly recommend it. Obviously, I've got a bit of a regional attachment to that story, but it's a great book. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm I'm always looking for you know these these memoirs are really where it happens when people grow up uh, and tell their story, um, and that's you know that's the power of of history to uh, uh, to reveal what's not revealed at the time uh, when young people just can't even figure out. They intuitively understand everything 100%, but it's hard to verbalize it and there's no outlet. So, you know, you think about back to the early fanzines and Riot Girl writing about what women were dealing with young women uh, and um, you know, that's, that's really, you know, why I am fixated on, you know, youth subculture as much as I am on the institutions that impose upon kids. It's like, you know, here's, here's, here's the monster, and then here's the, cell, the savior. Um, and um, it's just the way, it's something about America. Um, you know, why, that's why we, but it's also why we have worldwide connection, your Ramones worldwide, or death metal worldwide and you know i don't know what's going on in norway but i'd sure like to visit huh. and check check out that that sick music has got to be brilliant well, uh to hear that live so, some of those uh famous famous guys uh those infamous guys i should say are harder to get 
on the phone, but we we actually spoke to a band. Uh, she said destroy uh, two guys from Norway um, very recently, and they're from a younger generation. And they talked about how they, in their words, actually uh, the guy Anders, he said there was almost like a a jock bullying the nerd type of thing that happened to him uh, from those older black metal musicians that you know the infamous kind of satanic guys. Like it was a very hard scene to penetrate as a younger musician to come coming up. And um, I don't know if it's directly as a result, but they play a more eclectic, uh, progressive style of music than, than I guess is associated with Norway. Yeah, that's a crazy, you know, uh, I'm obsessed with Viking culture. You know, it's interesting, and there's so much now, documentaries and everything, and the idea, you know, of Norway resisting Christianity in favor of retaining uh pagan religions though so much goes on in music so much goes on in subculture when you look at you know if you look at hip-hop uh as education and vinyl reaching out to kids who are so disenfranchised uh, or or you know our metal that we love and um oh i'm so excited to hear that dm is uh, resurging that is that is that is just great you know that's yeah. great it's well, with with the resurgence too, what's great now too? Um, I mean, I've I've kind of spent uh, a lot of the time that we were indoors during the pandemic uh, reading because there's just been this uh, surge of books about the old school days of heavy metal. Um, you know, there's big ones that that most people there's like Choosing Death by Albert uh, Mud Ryan and um, uh, Lords of Chaos is is the old school one. But then you have like uh, there's Black Metal Evolution of the Cult, which is actually, a, I think that's the one that's a series of books now that's been um, coming out. There's a lot of stuff out there for people to go back and research. Um, and, and, you know, but something that you, you, you touched on was uh, women in, in these types of subcultures and music scenes. And I, something that you wrote about in um, a Misfits Manifesto, I think it was the, the chapter where you talked more about the 90s and, and the, 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 the metal and all that sort of thing, was the role of women in these, we'll just say extreme music subcultures and how women were becoming more actively involved as artists and, and to the forefront. Could you touch on that a little bit and maybe just give us, give us your take on um, any, any thoughts, uh, uh, you know, since obviously you wrote that? Uh, yeah, I think that, you know, I think it started uh, maybe simultaneously. Um, women started entering, uh, women rappers started to emerge. Um, there were bands that had uh, strong women. Uh, there, were, there were metal uh, incursions. It used to be metal, okay, Lita Ford, move on, you know. And, uh, and that was it, you know. Uh, but then, you know, it just, I think it was just time. And in the 90s is when I think it really started. But I don't want to discount women who came before that were pioneering and, and just so, so amazing. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm old enough to have grown up idolizing uh, Ronnie Spector and Mary Weiss from... Uh, uh, the Ronettes and uh, Shangri-Las, respectively, and uh, and then women, uh, and then all the music written by Carole King, and and then in the '60s, um, Janis Joplin and um, Grace Slick were role models because they were just strong women, and even if they were not, you know, as 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 
even if they, even if they were um, speaking more about suffering, or if they were somehow marginalized by the stronger personalities of the men, or the power of the men. But um, so then, by you know, by the '90s, um, you you know, with Courtney Love and um, you know Kathleen Hanna. Uh, and Will, uh, this is a band Wilma that was in the 70s, in uh, late 70s, early 80s in California, uh, and some of the gay bands, uh, women's bands, lesbian bands, um, Tribe, I think it was Tribe 8, another West Coast band, uh, and it just you know, it was just they kicked down the doors right to the top. Not that anybody's making the same money. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know economically. That's where you really measure it: is the power and the money. But the visibility is certainly uh, there. And um, yeah, um, Riot Girl and uh, Fox Core, uh, all that stuff. Um, I remember going to the to the to the punk shows and holding the jacket of. Of course, you know my boyfriend. It was different. We, <laughs> the girlfriends, would all line up at the pit. In the pit, it wasn't a pit yet. They just called it the front of the stage, and we would dance to try to get people to dance, <laughs> or we'd dance on stage. A little, you know, old school that way. But it was kind of entertaining, um, you know, like to try to be go-go dancers. And then I remember going to uh, some of the more hardcore shows, um, and just. Very few women in the pit, just standing in the back, holding the jackets. Um, I might have gotten in the pit once or twice, but I had to be very drunk to do it. It was, <laughs> you know, more about alcoholism than uh, than uh, actual participation in subculture. But um, yeah, I don't remember. Uh, I mean, everybody had girlfriends, but the girlfriends might have, you know, not have been as maniacal. And I think. I think I was there. I was, like I said, I was older with a sociological imagination, so that was a different, different thing. Um, and um, you know, but it, it just the role of women in anything. I just remember getting a lot of writing jobs because I was the only woman involved at the time in computers or firearms or pornography. The stuff I used to write about. Just you know, I, I don't know how I even got my way into these things. It just hobbies that I had military dad and musician mom so um, but uh, yeah it's definitely a changed world yeah yeah so uh, and there's you know it's something I touched on I interviewed um, Derek Webster of the California death metal bands to come and we spoke briefly his, uh, his singer is um, happens to be a woman um, and we spoke briefly on on the role of uh, you know gender and death metal and how it's a lot more common nowadays for there to be female artists and and obviously that doesn't discount the contributions of um, women who, who contributed in, in the past when it was less common. You know, there's like people um, uh, uh, rightfully so uh, play play up the legacy of Joe Bench from Bolt Thrower and, uh, you know, a lot of people. But now it's just uh, it's a more commonly accepted thing. I think that speaks maybe to, to like a larger, you know, comment on culture and, and where we might be, man. Um, but something I another thing that I wanted to talk about, though. We got a little um, sidetracked, but you you, you you touched on zine culture. Um, and in teen, I, b- I believe it was Teenage Wasteland, you talked about maximum rock and roll, 
Um, and and I know you have a you although you, you you do say you never left Long Island, you did spend some time in San Francisco, right? Well, I used to say I was married to New York, but I'm cheating with California. So yeah, I did live there for months and months and months, and got involved in their scene there. And you know, this involved with the Dead Kennedys and um, the Tools and um, just all those bands and. Um, Yes, yeah, so I, um, I don't know how, yeah, I think I just met Tim Yohannan somewhere at a show, and he asked me if I would write an article about fascism in youth culture, and this was again during that time, this was like not even 1980 when he asked me to do this, it was the year that it turned the the 80s, and, um, and I remember uh, there was a big problem in the scene with this, you know, I guess the these racist versus non-racist stuff that was going on and fighting, and uh, so he asked me to write that, and I think that was 1986 that that I published that, and that was probably the first music piece that I ever published. It was in a zine. Uh, before that, I had published stuff, but it was in like academic journals on female alcoholism and women at risk of you losing custody of their kids. But uh, but music that was the first time I, I I actually published it and then and uh, then it went on and on after that. I got to ask just on a side note there uh, did, did you ever contribute to or were you aware of the long the long running Long Island uh, zine under the volcano? Oh, I do remember it. I think I had copies of it. I don't know if I ever contributed in it, but this that's more an artifact of senility than <laughs> than. You know, but I definitely remember under the volcano. I definitely know I was reading it and picking it up at uh, Slip Disc, the yes. record store. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we had all these great stores. I spent my life in those places. Yeah, I remember. More s- time in. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, I'm just saying I spent more time in record stores than bars, which is kind of. Amazing. That's great, though. I, I I remember Slip Disc fondly, and um, I I actually because I'm out here in Suffolk, we used to go to um, none of the above records in Center Reach. Uh, that was oh. kind of out by um, uh, if I don't know if you're familiar with like Suffolk Community College in Selden, like out by that way. But, I do know that area. Yeah. Yeah, out out yeah, by well, the, talk about strip malls and highways, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's um. I think people just find uh, what they need wherever they are, or they invent it themselves. I think that's just the whole of the whole of the law, you know. That uh, you, your intuition, even if your brain doesn't know something in your gut and your heart, just you find what you need because um, you have to to survive psychically. You have to find your people, and you have to find your your world. Um, you have to try. Um, if, if it's not there to create it. And so that's, I think, what happens. It's remarkable to me that the Ramones created what they did, that Pyrexia created what they did, that my teamster sweetheart created what he did. He was the principal songwriter, uh, lyrics, and singer. And um, those guys were just incredible. They were as good as anybody out there. All of these bands were as good as anybody out there. And, um, you know, it's just, uh, music is the kid's religion. I have a, I have a thing on my, I have something on my refrigerator. It's a picture of a guitar, and it says, 
Dear Music, thank you for being there when nobody else was. Well, that that's that's uh, a frequent guest of the show, Paulo Paguntalan, also a Queens native. Um, he uh, uh, he always says de- uh, death metal is always there for you. So that's um, that's not yours isn't genre specific, but it's the same sentiment. Um, and one thing I wanted to ask you quickly, though, you mentioned um, uh, the Dead Kennedys being in San Francisco. Something I read was that you actually you participated in some way. I guess promoting polling for for Jello Biafra when he was running for mayor of San Francisco, right? Oh my God! I worked the polls, the election polls, and you you know you can't electioneer at the polls. You can't you know walk around this with something that says you know DK you know vote you know vote for Jello okay. Biafra. Right, right. You can't you can't do that. But you know, I wore my most punkiest of punk things. <laughs> To reference him to, but um, yeah, that was that was an interesting time. There was, there was a place called Target Video. People doing a lot of interesting stuff out there. I remember I went out there in the late seventies, and my friends used to tease me and call me Glitter Girl because I was wearing like the leopard skin spike heels and the little short skirts and the coats, and everybody was like in a whole different look, hardcore. You know, it's a whole different look. And I came back very changed uh, to New York. <laughs> but, well, uh, well, that, that's that's what you, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, uh, and you know, something you talked about too was getting. Uh, I, you know, it was in the Pyrexia chapter. You spoke a little bit of getting back into metal after being into hardcore and punk for so long. And um, it just brought to mind a question. Uh, you know, we cover all varieties of heavy music, but there's something about heavy metal that I've always felt has maybe a deeper spiritual connection. Oh! That's what then, I was thinking when you said yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. So you know where I'm going, and I think the listeners do too. We've brought up something similar. So this is the question I wrote down, um, and it relates also to the the kind of Zoso kids. We say Zoso like the Led Zeppelin symbols, and how I believe yep. that I believe those kids in the early '80s evolved into heavy metal kids later on mm-hmm. as a subculture. So the question is: Does heavy metal have a deeper connection to the spiritually rebellious nature? of rock and roll than other subgenres of rock, not just to single out hardcore and punk, but just a lot of the, the different ways rock and roll has gone, new wave and so on. Does heavy metal capture something back uh, from from the, the old school era? Well, yeah, yeah, and more than that. Um, if, you, if your listeners are really interested in the musicology of it, uh, Robert Walzer's book, uh, Running with the Devil, uh, he really looks at the chord structure and the way that the music is uh, is constructed, and um, that you know traces the lineage back to classical. Now I'm old, and so what I listen to now is early church music. I like uh, Palestrina, Monteverde, um, Rachmaninoff, um, and you know listening to that and then listening to some of the metal, like some of Metallica's earlier work, not, not the earliest, but like the Master of Puppets, uh, Ride the Lightning era. It's just, and, and, you know, some of the things that Ozzy is aiming for creatively, I've always felt the presence, uh, spiritual presence in that music. And that's, I've said this before, like my, you know, my roots may be in punk, but my heart will always belong to the metal because it's definitely this, this yearning um, and it's a longing for um, something. I, I just 
always felt that. Uh, I don't know that I could ever even articulate it. Maybe I'll try. <laughs> but um, it's definitely, I agree with that completely, that, that's, you know, that there's something in it that the artists are striving for. Um, and many musical artists are striving for this transcendence. Uh, just look at, you know, certainly Hendrix and Zepp. But um, you can hear it in, in all the music and um, and in the message, too. You know, this, um, whereas punk and hardcore always had a more of a more of a political anarchistic uh oppositional um verbal message and the music was abrasive um it's not soothing music it just it gets you worked up and gets you angry um whereas i found just from being at the shows and from my own physical experience of the music that the metal would really uh would be cathartic in the same way that uh speaking in tongues <laughs> I don't know. Not, you know that it was con- there was a connectivity um you know this uh there's um just some beautiful beautiful music that can transport you to uh that higher plane and certainly the classical stuff does it and then death because it deals with with a dark you know a dark platform it really gets all of that stuff out of the psyche and that's you know Jung would call that uh, the shadow you know like how do we get the darkness out of us it's in all of us but how do we get out of get it out of us so that we could look at it we don't disengage from it but we want to look at it so um, interestingly that we're talking about music and somebody just asked me this morning have you gone to any death metal shows and I'm like you know, it's like if I'm going to live shows, it's going to be a church recital because I just love those choral arrangements. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm more inclined to be writing directly about spirituality these days. But I think it was through the music that I was always trying to tap into it. And I think that, you know, it's a, it's been the salvation for so many people, Um just culturally, spiritually, socially, economically, politically, it's the you know it's it's really the the, the stuff of life. I know Joey Ramone believed that music was a spiritual force, you know, otherworldly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And touch just to um, you know, as as we wind down, um, I, I do I did want to mention too because I'm I'm right here in front of my bookshelf in my office here, and I have two books. Um, I believe you mentioned Lobotomy by D.D. Ramone. Yeah. Um, which I, I really enjoyed that book. I want to ask if if you're familiar with and have an opinion on I Slept with Joey Ramone, a family memoir by Mickey Lee oh, with Legs McNeil. Mickey and, yeah, no, I know that book, of course. Um, well, yeah, that's going to be a movie coming up now. Is it? Uh, yeah, starring um, Pete Davidson. As Joey, uh, I, I, well, gonna, I, yeah. I'll keep my opinion to myself, but there, there's other people that can portray New York characters. I'll just say that. Yeah, this is, listen, you know, you're in good company there. There's a real split. Some people think it's the worst possible thing. It should have been uh, Adam Driver, but um, well, well, I think yeah, now that you mention it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, but I, I think. Could you know Pete could possibly 
uh, project the soul of Joey a little bit, well, you know, really well because of his background and how he is. I think, you know, Mickey did a really good job there. I, I was very good friends with their mother. She was like, she was my role model and my hero, Charlotte Lesher. She was an artist. Uh, she had the gallery that they used to live in and practice in in Forest Hills. And she was 80 years old and she was at the show. She would be, you know, wow. she outlisted all of us. And, um, and I knew uh, Mickey from way back because he had a band, The Rattlers, that I liked. That, um, you know, and these were two talented sons, and they grew up, I think Joey and I had uh, multiple dads, uh, and he, um, so he grew up with, you know, my, my dad's passed away, but his, it was divorce, and um, so there was a lot of rupture, plus Joey had lots of medical problems as a kid, uh, he was really outcast. More, you know, we talk about metal kids uh, and punk kids, street kids feeling like outcasts. Well, you know, you throw on top of that any kind of disability or um, if there's mental mental challenges, uh, then life is just is just miserable for that child. And I think that was that's why Joey, you know, to so many kids, is a hero. He's like a what we call a bodhisattva. Uh, somebody who incarnated out of the horror of the world, but came back to help us. And some people really just pray to him. Um, they just pray to him. Um, and so I think Mickey Mickey had a hard choice because I think Mickey can't win with something like that, you know, um, because it's it's so close to his heart and it's his experience. And then you know it's somebody he lost. And, um, you know, they put out an album together, Sibling, sibling Rivalry. Huh. And, and um, I just, I knew their whole family. I became very close friends with his mom and then spent time with Joey out on the East End. Uh, I lived out there. He used to come out and visit me. We, he'd come out and visit his father. Had a condo out there, East Hampton. And we, we just, you know, so that stuff is hard to write about. Um, it's just very hard to write about. And I think he did did a great job but you know it's it's never easy to write about your own life i mean uh you know um and and to write anything i mean there are people who just hate hate writers the way they hate bands yeah 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 and you know i guess you do what you can do so i i think he did a good job with that i i, I think all their memoirs are great uh um, we, you know, CJ's got one in progress. Um, he's uh, got a great story. He's a different generation with a different different experience. Um, and then, you know, uh, of course, uh, Johnny's uh, memoir and Dee Dee wrote a few, and Marky, and those are just great books. Yeah, um, Mon Monty's is probably the most popular of them all. Uh, you know, he was the tour manager. But, oh, man. You know, talk about people, and they're all ascended to the heavens. Well, that that, that brings me, um, uh, as we wind down, just one more question for you about your or your career. You know, you talk about people, you just said people sometimes hate writers the way they hate bands. Have you ever had any pushback on things you've written or um, you know, the, a lot of the interviews you've given where people ask you about youth culture and metal culture and that sort of thing, 
pushback or criticism from within um, heavy metal and punk rock? Um, I have, I have always, I think I got famous having hate mail at the Village Voice. I wrote this, my first cover story was Wild in the Burbs, and it was about my life with my uh, life partner and uh, our band, and, and, and just, again, celebrating that suburbia did have something going for it, and people accused me of getting fucked in the back of Jack in the Box. It was nuts. <laughs> they just, you know, and I'm like, come on, you know, I'm like, and, um, I've always, I've always had e- people who either really love me or really hate me, um, and that's. I think my writing is more aggressive than my personality. Like if you meet me in person, I'm a lot, I'm a lot like warmer and softer. My writing is very aggressive, like the music that I like. It's just you know, um, and it polarizes some people usually around lines of taste and class and i have some friends uh, you might hang up on me when i say this i have some friends that they they still love me but they just like how could you really say that you like creed songs (laughs) (laughs) and 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 i'm like you know what it's like it's music it's a value to someone and i i never identified as a music critic i always identified as a cultural sociologist so I'm not going to sit around and piss on somebody's music. And if I find some value in it, I'm not going to be ashamed of it. But I've always had hate mail. Uh, people from Bergenfield were split. I got real hate mail. Mm, yeah, and then I yeah. got real fan mail. And some of the people who were related to some of the people that I wrote about um, had, you know, be- befriended me and said, like, yeah, man, like, you really told the truth. This is what it was really like. And then some people said, like, you know, you're like the Taliban. You're the worst. And I'm like, you know, God, you need some better, better, uh, better reference points than that. But um, I don't know. You know, it's just part of it. You put yourself out there. Um, you have to have thick skin. Uh, and I learned the hard way. You know, when I wrote that first article for the Village Voice, I got a page of hate mail, and I wanted. I came home. To this message from the letters editor, and I was I was going to ready to hide under the bed. And the next day, everybody in the voice said, "Like you're famous, you're famous. We we want you to only do cover stories." <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, okay, you know, because they wanted the controversy, and it just really struck a chord. People hated the suburbs. They thought, you know, I'm automatically racist if I'm writing about white kids in teenage wasteland, you know." Why aren't you writing about other kids? And I'm like, well, this is right in my face. This is right in front of me. These are my kids. These are my neighbors. You know, that's what I'm writing about. I grew up in Rockaway. This is what our truth was, and it's as valid as everybody else's. And um, I've always had hate mail. People uh, had, you know, some people. The book that you mentioned, my my memoir, uh, A Misfit's Manifesto, was uh, it was the story of my teenage wasteland. Uh, and also of recovery from addiction and finding faith and finding happiness in life, because it's a whole other story. But um, I, um, you know, the people. Some people thought I figured out a new way to do sociology through that book. Other people thought it was just garbage. Um, who cares? They're reading my book. I'm not reading theirs. I don't even know them. Huh. You know, at the huh. <laughs> I like. I like. That, yeah. That's that, that, yeah. That's a very hip hop way of of uh, of looking at your critics. Um, uh, oh, you have to. Yeah. You, or you won't do anything. You know, who cares if they like you? That's not, you're in there 
to tell a story. If you, you're banned, somebody says your band is shit. Good, you get up on the stage and play. You write music. All you're doing is sitting there jacking off at your computer. Sorry, audience. You know <laughs> they've they've heard <laughs> they've heard worse. Um, it's a death metal audience. And 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 let that let that be good words of wisdom for uh, our, any of our younger listeners who might be aspiring artists or aspiring anything. Um, you know you. Don't don't take criticism uh, too harshly, you know, especially if it's somebody who's not doing it themselves. Uh, and if they are doing it themselves better than you, then um, they have a they have a shitty attitude for uh, for criticizing somebody coming up. But um, uh, Doctor Donna Gaines, uh, I, to be respectful of your time, I've said we're winding it down a few times, but th- but there's just so much. I just want to plug again for the listeners. Obviously, your, your three books: Why the Ramones Matter, uh, A Misfits Manifesto, The Spiritual Journey of a Rock and Roll Heart. And of course, teenage wasteland, suburbia's dead end kids. Those are the three books that we referenced very, very heavily during this interview. Is there anything else that you would like to um, to plug or promote that you might have going on? Ah, uh, you know, I just I just want people to remember what Joey Ramone says, which is do it from the heart, um, and then you know, take no prisoners, um, and just keep doing what you're doing, and keep filling the world with beautiful music. Uh, the harder and heavier it is, and um, you know, I just uh, you know, all, and to quote the great, glorious Led Zeppelin, "All of my love to you." <laughs> I love it. Uh, we thank you very much for your time, and just the, the one last question that we ask everybody: Please recommend to us one older album and one newer album uh, by any artists, any type of music uh, you like. Oh God. Um... Let me think. Uh, oh. Uh, well, if you want to learn how to play guitar, the Ramones' first album, that's mm. just Ramones, I think that's a good place to start. Um, newer stuff, uh, like I said, my head is in the 16th century. <laughs> I'm listening to Palestrina, one of my favorite uh things that I listen to is By the Rivers of Babylon, and that's classical music. That's not new, but I don't, you know, I'm kind of living in an Alpha Omega world, no past, no present, no future. Mm. So, you know, on any given day, I don't, you know, I just listen to what comes into my head. Uh, I'll certainly check out your band, um, and uh, I have, um, you know, just, uh, and this, this, it's all... Oh, it's all out there. It's all, it's all uh, good, and it's all for the love of metal. Awesome. That's what we love on the show. And we thank you again for your time, Dr. Donna Gaines. All right. Thank you. God bless. Bye-bye. Now I have no excuse um, for dropping out of college uh, because I loved heavy metal and underground music so much. That's that's great. 
Well, sure. I mean, you <laughs> just don't. <laughs> you can just not enlist. I don't know. No, look, big shout out to Dr. Donna Gaines um, for sharing with her so much of her life experience relevant to the underground death metal scene on Long Island that we all love so so much and beyond. Um, and uh, also for, um, uh, I, I, you know, I guess I'll just say uh, writing those books and starting uh, some of this tradition now and some of this uh, more widespread culture we have of exploring metal culture and uh, some of the troubled youth that get into metal culture and, and um, some of the less superficial reasons why kids are led, led astray. Uh, very interesting conversation. Like I said, there was so much to cover. Uh, maybe we could get her back one day when there's something um, more timely to discuss. But thank you very much to Dr. Donna Gaines for her time today. You know, Will, we do have a voicemail. I okay. Think- I think it's worth listening to. Okay, good. That, that, that'll that help me bring me down. Yo, yo, what's up? Heavy It's Bobby. It's been a while. Hey, Bobby. Hey, I've been seeing all kinds of posts from you guys here lately, uh, posting hip-hop songs and shit. So it leads me to want to recommend a hip-hop release. I can't remember what year this came out, to be honest. I think it was 2018. It's the rapper R.A. the Rugged Man. Wow. He's from New York, so y'all might be familiar with him. Yes, sir. The album's called All My Heroes Are Dead. And he is just such a fucking sick rapper, man. He just spits like no other. Uh, but yeah, definitely check him out. They got a song on there called The Big Snatch. So you can start off with that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for an older release, man, going into the metal... I'm going to release, uh, recommend something. Sorry, I'm under the influence, allegedly. Uh, something that's not mentioned as much as it should. They certainly don't get the credit. I do not know if they're around anymore. But it's a band called Pavor, or Paver. P-A-V, as in Victor, O-R, from Germany. They have a 2003 release called Furioso. And, man, this whole fucking album is just, Technical ecstasy, man. Uh, I would suggest starting off with the song Inconsistent Clay Blood Totemist. It's track seven. And if you get a little over three minutes into the song, there's just such an astounding bass solo in that song. Uh, But it is very technical, very tight, uh, kind of necrophagist-like in a way. But things a little more jazz informed. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, hope y'all are doing great. Still catching up on the podcast. Just now getting the 2020 um, interviews. <laughs> uh, but it's been a great pastime at work. Really, really digging what y'all are doing. And uh, other than that, hope y'all have a great Thanksgiving. Carving up corpses and shit. Peace. All right, Bobby, man. Glad to have Bobby back on the show, man. Yeah, looking for uh, carving that that corpse, as you say. Mm. Never heard that term like that, but yeah, somehow I, I, it's mouthwatering. Yeah, it's great. It's just like it's how it's how we should be presenting the holidays on a on a death metal podcast. Yeah, right. Damn it, um, ain't that America for you and me? Uh, you know, he, he Bobby always um, drives it right home for me, and this is amazing serendipity. Uh, we just talked, well, I just had a lengthy conversation with Dr. Donna Gaines, uh, very Long Island-centric. Our friend Bobby calls in 
drives it right home to probably the most Long Island rapper you could bring up on this podcast, R.A. the Rugged Man, uh, infamous, a.k.a. Crustified Dibs from back in the day, for those who know. Yeah, one of the most esteemed, um, in my personal opinion, Long Island rappers. I, I've, I've Obviously, I'm biased. Uh, I grew up listening to a lot of R.A. the Rugged Man through the years. Um... I have a, a family member who kind of knew him behind the scenes and things like that. Man, I have a tremendous amount of respect. I actually don't follow R.A. the Rugged Man's more modern material as much as I go back to, like, American Low Life and Smith Haven Mall and um, even the Crustified Dibs, Bloodshed, Hua, Hua, just because I have a nostalgic um, view on that stuff and kind of a nostalgic attachment to that stuff. But um, R.A., it's crazy how he came back and kind of not he was never shabby as a lyricist. RA was always a true MC, but he has just never stopped advancing his craft as one of the best lyricists in the game in my opinion. Long Island white boy or not. Obviously I'm going to I can't really be too objective about it. He's like you know, self-proclaimed white trash from uh, Port Jefferson Station, I think he uh, he's, he raps about. But, but um, you know, that's very close to my heart and the heart of a lot of people I grew up with out here on Long Island. Uh, but really, nowadays, if you listen to some of his more recent albums, um, the guy has turned himself into a world-class MC that cannot be denied lyrically um, on any scale. Yeah, he's, uh, he's uh, uh, an amazing lyricist, and his delivery is uh, unmatched by a lot, but by most. Nobody uh, could battle Ari. No. Uh, yeah, he's just, and he raps with balls. He's got like... He, He's got fun ideas, and he's also got uh, harsh truths and stuff that he raps about. I, I got really into the uh, the album Legends Never Die. Uh-huh. Um, outside of that, I'm not as familiar. I have heard some of the other the older stuff, and I enjoyed it, but um, Legends Never Die was a good one for me. I got to check out this new one, though, All My Heroes Are Dead. I love this album cover. It's so, like, 70s exploitation. Look at yeah. That. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, I just... You know, I with it, as him, it's funny because he mentions I've been posting hip-hop. Most of the hip-hop I've been posting is older stuff that I'm more familiar with, man. When it comes to hip-hop, I'm so New York-centric and old-school-centric. It's hard for me to get into more modern stuff. Um, even already the, the Rugged Man's more modern albums, man. But definitely no reason I, I shouldn't check it out. Oh, bitch, stop it. I hope your pop get his wallet picked by a pickpocket and your fat mother drown in the puddle of pig vomit. All I cared about was trying to get inside vagina lips and biting tits. I was unstable, fighting, having violent fits. The point I might have missed, more irritating than psoriasis is at the height of this. They tried to hire a psychiatrist. My career fell apart. Taught me how to be humble. Watch the 1.8. Pavor. Yeah, the that I'm not too up. familiar with, man. So I, I'm, I looked at their, uh, took a quick peek at their wikipedia and uh yeah they've been around for a while dude um i'm surprised i've never heard of this band technical death metal from germany so you know you're up for something good look at those german technical technical death metal bands well i'll tell you what, i plan on listening to it after the show maybe we could just punch it up for for like 10 seconds like we do with the, the recommendations right after we talk about it right now tom for the listeners what do you say sure let's right. do it Velocity, 
then t Tom, that's why I love you for that technical magic that you do. Um, so that was a little bit of paveboard, like we just checked out. Uh, shout out to Bobby for the voicemail, man. If somebody wants to leave a voicemail, I'm not going to say you have to leave a voicemail to the caliber of Roman Cheech's uh, application for Justin's job from last week or Bobby's uh, recurring narrative on this show. Uh, just do what you feel, man. Do what you're capable of. But what's that number, Tom? 631 837-3274. It's in the podcast description. You can find it very easily. You don't have to actually write it down. This is kind of a bit at this point. Yeah, it's true. Um, but if you call up, here's the thing, man. If you don't want to leave your job application for Justin's job, if you don't have some recommendation, here's here's a hot topic I want. Give me your take on Christian death metal. Uh, some people laugh. Some people say, ha, ha, ha. You can't do that. Ha, ha, that's stupid. Yeah, ha, ha, ha. Ha. That's a that's a um that 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 doesn't make sense, uh. But at the same time, there's like you know you have mortification, you have broken. It, it is a thing. It exists. Look, all I'm getting at is we mentioned John Osgood, local Long Island Christian uh, metalhead. Very early on in our podcast history, one of our first uh, non-artists and actually remote episodes where we went out and we went somewhere to a um. Uh, to a person, to it was I think where where he lived or a family house or somewhere not to yeah, disclose was, location. Uh, yeah, it was a bunker, all right. Yeah, it was it was on the um, uh, on the uh, uh, one of the earliest episodes where we did a whole special on Christian death metal, particularly Christian grindcore, Christian black metal. We talked about it all, and John is kind of like a lifelong expert on Christian extreme metal from the thrash metal scene and punk and stuff going forward into whatever extremities you have now. Uh, so we recommend you go back and check that out. It's an interesting topic. Me personally, I don't know that I identify as a Christian. I also don't really identify as an occultist or an atheist. Um, you know, my own spiritual journey is something that I don't really talk about on the podcast so much. Maybe I'll do a Patreon if people have some interest in my narrative. Uh, but I, I, I've tried to make room on the podcast for metalheads and metal culture from um, in, in all of its forms, including Christian metal. Uh, and we, you know, we've also had guests that are from an occult background on here too, as well. And I, you know, I would welcome guests that are from any other type of different um, cultural or religious background. I think it's important, kind of like in a journalistic sense. Um, yeah, it's to perspectives. Explore. You know, we're not really shunning any perspectives. I guess you know, not really gonna go out of our way to talk to anyone who's got a lot of hate in them or anything like that. But uh, you know, I, I don't know. Like I, my only. My only religion is Bitcoin, and like, <laughs> but I respect what he's doing. This is his thing. He's really into it. So I'm at the show. He wants. He I saw him put out some business cards. He re, you know, he's uh, he puts his money where his mouth is. This gentleman. Yeah. Well, it's funny you, you mentioned the the bunker. That's his uh, his his um <clears throat> church that he's. Uh, uh, I guess I don't know if he's still in the process of starting it or, if, or how advanced they've gotten. With he talked about it on the episode. He was handing out these uh, books though. Um, he gave me, well, thank you to John for the book, he gave me this metal Bible. Um, and I do actually, you know, I have a shelf at home on my bookshelf with all my metal books. Uh, you know, my, um, uh, you know, the improbable history of death metal and grindcore. And I do have a copy of Lords of Chaos. Uh, you know, don't, don't hate me, I'm not a poser. And um, all my other death metal and black metal books and, you know, associated punk rock books and everything that I, I consider my research library for the podcast. Sure. And I will add this. Um, and this is, a, it's kind of interesting, man. Um, you know, whether you're spiritually inclined to check this out 
or whether it's just something that you might uh, enjoy on kind of a research level or an, a novelty level. It's a, a copy, I guess, of the New Testament with uh, very slick metal artwork and um, commentary by Nico McBrain of Iron Maiden. Um, some, I guess, I guess you might say lesser-known Christian artists. There's also Dave Ellefson of Megadeth. Oh, he's a Christian? Uh, he's he's in that's, the Metal Bible. That's fun. Yeah, the, I, I'm thinking out loud. No, yeah. no, it's it's fun. No, you're right because I didn't know. I mean, um, you know, obviously Michael Sweet from Striper is here. That's fairly expected. You got one of the guys from uh, White Snake in the house. Um, there's there's a lot. Uh, I don't I don't know if the guy from Corn uh, made it in here, but no, it's just kind of interesting to me. It's a little bit of a resource for Christian metal. There's some bands in it. Tourniquet. Um, Tourniquet is kind of a, a little bit more of a, no, a known extreme Christian metal band, I guess. Um, but just some stuff al- along with uh, a reprinting of the New Testament here uh, and some testimonies from um, Satanists and alcoholics uh, who've turned to Christ. I find this interesting. I get what I get out of it. And I just want to shout out John Osgood. I do respect him. Uh, you know, he stands his ground for his beliefs, and he is a member of the Long Island metal community. So I just thought that was interesting. And if you're interested in that topic, we do have an episode about it. And um, I did mention we also have interviewed a cultist. You can go back and check out. I think it was our first Halloween episode with Greg Lehman of Telog Vovin. Yeah, that was uh, the opposite end of the spectrum spiritually. Yeah. Um, also very interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the idea of spirituality and metal and where they intersect is something I've always been very interested in. And, you know, um, I feel like the spirit's moving the segue right now because we talked about that with Dr. Donna Gaines uh, just this evening in our interview um, the spirituality aspect of metal. Uh, and and um, I just want to thank her again for her time and recommend to the listeners again that they go back um, and not only read that, uh, if, if they're interested, that metal Bible book I was just talking about. I thought that was interesting. But also, of course, Dr. Donna Gaines' books. Um, again, that's Teenage Wasteland, Suburbia's Dead End Kids. That's the one with the picture of the OG Pyrexia lineup on it, by the way. And um, there's also A Misfits Manifesto, The Spiritual Journey of a Rock and Roll Heart. That's her memoir. Um, and it also recounts. Uh, it has. It has that. Pa- that's where I took the passage where I quoted her speaking uh, reverently about death metal. Um, and it has a passage where she recounts uh, her experiences with the early Pyrexia lineup and Wallace Milton of internal bleeding in it. Uh, and then there's, there's also the book Why the Ramones Matter. That's the book I'm not as familiar with personally. Um, but if you were interested in a lot of her talk about the Ramones tonight, that's the book to pick up. So um, we thank her very much for her time. It's not every day we get. Um, uh, a full-on scholar, um, someone from academia on the podcast. I tried to do my best uh, not to uh, stutter and uh, get things wrong. I tried to do the research right. So um, thanks to her for her time. Tom, I thank you, sir, for everything you do behind the scenes here. We did. Let's see. We got the voicemail number out of the way. Got it. Uh, what if people want to, like, uh, drop a dime? Uh, no, you know, I'm no. That's a. That's what if people want to drop more than a dime? <laughs> Go to Patreon.com/slash Heavy Hole Podcast, or just Google it because it's there. Yeah. I swear. Yeah, get me out of here with that. Drop a dime. Don't drop a dime on nobody. Yeah, right? no, that's really it. You know, that's 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 the stuff. We got the social medias things. You guys know how to reach out. Come on, man. You know yeah. how to do that. Re- stuff. Yeah, reach out and touch somebody. Thanks to Doctor Donna Gaines. Thank you to you. Thank you to Bobby for the voicemail. Uh, call up. Don't be shy. Heavyholepodcast.com. The social medias are there. Everything's there. Um, and uh, you know, there's a few emails in the uh, the inbox that I haven't replied to yet. So. Next episode, we'll pick one. 